be reading uh, Joel. You can use your own Bible or Bible app, uh, Joel chapter 1. Uh, if you're using the church Bible, it's on page 919, 919. And after this, we're also going to be reading Luke chapter 13. Uh, so Joel chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Bethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ye all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree, it has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. The branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of a youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The vine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes, is not the food cut off before your eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels from under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pasture of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks dried up, and fire has devoured the pasture of the wilderness. Chapter 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, 
a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness that is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people that light has never been before, nor will again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, like war horses they run. And as with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. Their faces grow pale, like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from the paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And now, uh, Luke chapter 13, if you're using the church uh, Bibles, is on page 1051. 1051. Luke chapter 13. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood of Pilate had mingled with the sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but because, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish.
Okay, let's start again. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I know, you know, not that it's that hard to hear me, but anyway, there you go. Uh, it is good to be here. Let's, uh, let's kick things off. Uh, can I just say that? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? As I've been reflecting on... Uh, we started this series in Joel, and um, it's a little short book, but uh, so powerful in the things that it has to say. And I was thinking this week, you know, increasingly it, Christians are considered to be on the wrong side of history. You know, we've entitled the series uh, The Right Side of History, but often we're considered to be on the wrong side of history. And I, I thought, you know, we could kind of ask, couldn't we, what does being on the right side of history actually mean? I mean, because these days I think it, it seems to be used as a, a slogan to uh, legitimise a current fashionable view. Uh, and, and then in turn, you know, uh, it can be used to condemn those who disagree with that particular view. And so, for example, everyone who agrees with the view in question... Uh, whether that is, you know, something uh, of our current situations, whether it's around sexuality or whatever it is, but everyone who's, who agrees with the view in question is seen as intelligent and enlightened and therefore on the right side of history. But for those who disagree, well, they're ignorant, out of touch, and naturally on the wrong side of history. And so it'd be better if they just kind of kept quiet and faded into the past. Well, as Christians, it's, uh, it's likely that there are times when you're made to feel that way. Your views are out of touch. Your beliefs are wrong. I'm pretty sure that there would be plenty of people who would think exactly that about this book of Joel that we're going to be spending the next few weeks in together. It's a message about the outcome of human history. Uh, Joel's prophecy is not easy for us to hear. Uh, as Hendry read chapter 1 and 2 for us, I expect that uh, it was clear that this is not going to be an easy topic. It's not going to be a popular topic. But it is a necessary topic for us to understand and to grapple with, I think. Because Joel is warning us here about bad news. And if something bad is coming, wouldn't you much prefer to be warned about it so that you can take the appropriate action? I know I would. And there are some things uh, to hear in Joel that I think will be difficult. But God actually wants us to hear them. That's why we have them in front of us. He wants us to understand the world that we live in rightly. He wants us to understand the things that happen in our own lives. And he wants us to know where all of life is heading. And so let's just stop and pray together and ask God to speak his word to us, to our hearts and minds through his prophet Joel today. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we come before you with a, a book of the Old Testament, but more than that, with the words that you have spoken to your prophet Joel to speak to your people so many years ago and yet still speaks to us today. And so do give us understanding of your word. Help us to sit in places that we might find difficult and even uncomfortable so that we can understand what you are saying to us today, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, can I say, Joel is about to speak to us about a devastating event. But can I say, before we hear what he has to say, what do we actually know about Joel himself? Well, you can see there in verse 1 that he is the son of Pethuel. And who is Pethuel? Well, he's the father of Joel. And that's pretty much all we know. So we, we don't actually have any of the kind of normal markers uh, to know the period in which Joel actually wrote so for example we don't know who was the king at the time which often helps us to understand when it is that Joel is writing 
Uh, his regular mentions of Judah and Jerusalem and the prophets who minister suggest that he's actually speaking to God's people in the southern part of the kingdom of Israel. Um, but the thing that we do know is that he is a prophet. Uh, if you were at our weekend away just a few weeks back, uh, Seth preached through the book of Zephaniah, another one of the prophets, uh, who is also one of what is called the minor prophets, uh, of which there are 12. You can see them there on the screen at the moment. And Joel is one of them. And their role was to call God's people back to obedience to the covenant that God had made with his people Israel. Uh, in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord that came to Joel. So this is the message that God speaks through his prophet Joel. And so it's important to recognise that this isn't Joel's message. Uh, it's not like his reflection that he's kind of putting out there. These are the words that God speaks. And so we too need to listen to Joel's words as God's words. And notice that this is a message that everyone needs to hear. Look at verse 2. Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. That is, this is for both leaders and for all people, for everybody, everywhere. And, and notice the gravity of the situation here in verse 2. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? And the obvious answer is no. This is one of those massive events that uh, the following generations need to know about. Tell your children of it, he says in verse 3. And let your children tell the generations to follow down to the several grandchildren. I mean, in one sense, just like we teach kids about the Holocaust, perhaps, or we commemorate Anzac Day, not just to remember those who gave their lives in war, but also to warn the following generations of its horrors. We'll no doubt tell our kids and grandkids about the years of COVID. So what is this thing that has happened here in the book of Joel? Well, a devastating and crushing locust plague has virtually destroyed the southern kingdom of Israel. Uh, see verse 4? The cutting locust, the swarming locust, the hopping locust, the destroying locust had virtually stripped the place bare. Now, if you've watched the, uh, the little David Attenborough video in our daily Bible readings, you'll have got a sense of just how destructive a locust plague can be. Uh, in, in one square kilometre of a locust swarm, you'll get up to 80 million locusts. Uh, the largest, largest locust swarm, uh, swarms actually reach over 900 square miles, more than three times the size of New York City. And they can contain up to 192 billion locusts and in one day it's actually estimated that they can eat the same amount as 90 million people i take it you get the picture it's a, it's total devastation for some places and, and look at the effect that it has on three areas of judah's life uh, you can see it there on your outlines joel tells us of the effect of this plague on the land on their relationship with god and on the people themselves and so the land, notice, has been shredded. Look again at, at verse 7 of chapter 1. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Or from verse 10, the fields are destroyed. The ground mourns the, because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. 
The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, the pomegranate, palm and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up. I mean, notice the repetition of despair here. Destroyed, mourns, dries up, languishes, perished. He describes the effect on the land like the destruction of war in verse 6. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth and it has the fangs of a lioness. Such is this locust plague. And what makes this more significant is that this land here is not just any old area of land. I mean, God says here in verse 6 that this destruction is of my land. This is not any area of land. This is the promised land. The land that God gave to Israel as his place of blessing, where he would provide for and give them everything they needed. It would be a land flowing with milk and honey. But there's more going on here because Joel makes it clear that it's more than just the effect on the land. And this plague of locusts has uh, cut off a significant aspect of their relationship with God. In verse 9, the temple ministry has to cease. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. You know, part of the the daily rituals of Israelite worship and, and relating to God was their various offerings of grain and wine and oil. And so relationship with God here hung on their sacrifices. But if their crops fail and there's no grain, there's no wine, and so their very means of relationship with God is cut off, something has gone terribly wrong here. Their daily covenant relationship with God is on hold. And so the impact on the people themselves here is huge. The farmers' crops are destroyed along with their livelihoods, which means the supermarket shelves are bare so everyone is affected. No one has anything to eat. And that includes all the priests and the ministers in the temple. Look again at verse 13. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Why? Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of of your God, the people of Israel everywhere are in utter despair. No one is unaffected. Look at the end of verse 12. Gladness dries up from the children of man. And you can feel the life being sucked out of this nation, the grief that it leaves in its wake. But is this just a, a national disaster story that we're reading? Or is it perhaps a, uh, you know, a bit of a David Attenborough, destructive nature lesson that we're learning something that people have just got to kind of pick themselves up from and move on well actually no that's not it that's not what we're learning here there's something even more significant going on here than that they need to understand see joel is doing what prophets do he's warning people what joel is describing is exactly what god promised would happen if God's people rejected him. Now, we need to have a look uh, back for a moment at what God had promised his people in Deuteronomy 28. Now, I've put these passages on the screen so that you don't have to flick back to them. But Deuteronomy chapter uh, 28, verses 2 to 5, where God is, God's people are just about to move into the promised land and he gives them uh, the promises and the curses of what it would look like to live for him in the land. And so in verse 2, we read this. He's, God says to his people, And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. 
blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. You see, here is God's promise of blessing of Israel in the promised land if they obeyed him. But look down at verses 15 and 16 in the same chapter. Again, it's on the screen there. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. And what could that look like? Well, down to verse 38 and following. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them up, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. The cricket, or the locust, shall possess all your trees and the fruit of your ground. In other words, the locusts are actually a sign that all is not well in Judah. Now, another great place to help us understand what's going on here is is King Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. Uh, In 1 Kings uh, chapter 8, verses 37 to 40, when all of God's people are gathered to dedicate the new temple that has been built where God would dwell with his people, Solomon prays that if a famine or pestilence or locust or caterpillar or whatever plague comes upon the land of Israel because the people have sinned, Then he says, when your people turn back to you, forgive them. So that is, God has always warned his people that if they rejected him, they would face his consequences. Joel is saying, look at what is happening to you. Don't you get it? What's happening to us is exactly what God said would happen if we rebelled against him. This is God's judgment upon your sin. You know, no wonder Joel tells them to wake up from their complacency in verse 5. No wonder there's lamenting and mourning and anguish and tears. And so what are they to do? Well, look at verse 14. The priests and the ministers are to consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. See, everyone, priests and people are to come together at the temple, not with offerings, because they've got nothing to give, but they're to come together and they're to cry out to the Lord. They're to wake up and they're to come with weeping and mourning, with genuine heartfelt grief over their sin. They're to put on sackcloth and fast because their relationship with God is in tatters there to cry out to God in genuine grief and repentance for their sin. You see, it's the right response to the judgment of God. Remember, that's the message of the prophets. Tell those who are under the judgment of God so that they might call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. See, we're not told exactly what they've done wrong here, although we can see it in many other parts of the Bible. But in one sense, that's actually really helpful for us here because this isn't a warning that's tied to one time and one place. This is a warning for Israel, yes, but it's also a warning for every generation. We live in a world that is in open rebellion against God. If we think that's going to end well, then we are mistaken. It's not about being on the wrong side of history. 
It's about being ignorant of what history teaches us about God and about ourselves. Now, I'm not saying that every time some disaster happens in our world or in our own personal lives that we can link it to some specific sin. Actually, the Bible doesn't allow us to do that. We saw that in, in Luke chapter 13 that Henry read for us. A, a tower had, a, had collapsed and, and killed a bunch of people and Jesus' disciples wanted to know if that was because of their sin. And Jesus says to them, no, they were no more sinful than others, but he still offers, says it offers a warning. He says, you be careful. Unless you repent, something worse will happen to you. See, it, it's really the same warning that Joel goes on to warn Israel of here. Now, verse 15 uh, in chapter 1 there is both a key verse in the book of Joel, uh, particularly in this first section of Joel, but it's also a turning point. Uh, look at what verse 15 says. It says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. See, this verse actually begins to show us Joel's even greater concern for his people. And why, it also shows why the imagery he uses in the second part of the passage gets even more distressing. Now, alas, is a, is a, uh, it's a cry of alarm. When he says, alas for the day, he's speaking about the day of the locusts. Why is he so alarmed about the day of the locusts? Well, not simply because it's evidence of God's judgment for their sin now, but his alarm at the day of the locusts points to another day, the day of the Lord. See, here is actually the big theme uh, in the book of Joel. The fact that the day of the locusts has come says to us the day of the Lord is coming and it's going to be even worse. And so Israel often thought of the day of the Lord as a good thing, uh, it would be a, a, a moment that actually proved that they were on the right side of history, where nations would get to see that Israel were right all along. But look at what Joel says in verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. See, if Israel thought it was good news, they're wrong. It's bad news Yes, it does contain good news, and we'll get to that in the second part of the book, but it is bad news for all sin and all sinners. In fact, Joel wants us to know that to come under the judgment of God on the day of the Lord is nothing short of terrifying. In chapter 2, Joel wants us to feel the terrifying and the inescapable judgment that is coming on that final day of the Lord. You notice there in verses 1 and 2, the mood is darkened even further. Let me just pick it up there, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. You see, Joel stresses the darkness of this day, the day when... God comes in judgment on the wickedness of this world on that great and final day of the Lord. And the advancing hordes of locusts are described like a great and powerful army devouring everything in its path. Joel is using it as a way of helping us to understand that this is going to be a terrible day. Just pick it up there from verse 6. Before them, peoples are in anguish. This is of chapter 2. Peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. 
Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march, each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in its path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. So in verse 11, uh, we're told that this is the Lord's army. It's God who has brought judgment on his people because of their sin and rebellion. But if they thought that the day of the locusts was bad, the day of the Lord will bring something far worse than locusts and something that will be for all sinners. It's a judgment that's not just terrifying, but it's inescapable. See verse 3, fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. See, when the final day of the Lord arrives, when God brings this world, his world, to face his judgment, it won't just affect some people. It will be everyone. And so at the end of verse 11, Joel deals this final blow. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome, who can endure it? See, that's the big question of this book. And the mood here is alarming. And that's because Joel doesn't want us to be complacent. You know, we are incredibly unfortunate here in Australia not to have faced so many of the world's atrocities and natural disasters. You know, we hear the attack of, on Israel last week and we can think, aren't we glad we're not living there? Or in other countries where war and oppression and injustice and corruption and poverty and all of those things kind of tear societies apart. And we might think, why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't God step in and right the wrongs? Why doesn't he prevent disasters? Why doesn't he come and bring justice? But of course, that's exactly what Joel is about. The day of the Lord is coming. It's nearer now than when Joel wrote. The day of the Lord is that day when God will come and will fully and finally put everything back to right and you might think yes lord please do that fix the sin in our world fix the injustices and the brokenness of our world please put things right but am i really ready for that because that includes me am i ready for god to judge me i mean i hate the sin and suffering in the world but what about the sin in my life? What about the pain that I cause others? What about my anger, my impure thoughts, my deceit and lies, the things that I hide from others but God sees? Do I really want God to come and judge me with justice, knowing everything about me that he does? Because the day of the Lord means righting all wrongs. And if I'm wrong then I too will face his purifying fire. Can I say I don't want God's justice? If God treats me with justice, then I'm in big trouble. I don't want justice. I want God's mercy. I need God's mercy because I'm a sinner. We're going to see more of that incredibly powerful message in the chapters to come. Today we're kind of sitting in the darkness, right? There's going to be some glory to come. But right now, I'm wanting God's mercy. 
But I think Joel gives us a glimpse even here of that as well. See in chapter 1, verse 19, Joel says, To you, O Lord, I call. And in verse 14, he urges the whole of Israel to cry out to the Lord. See, God may be a completely good and righteous judge who will not allow evil to go on forever in any form. But he is first and foremost a good and loving God. Gracious and merciful, we're told, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so Joel says, cry out to this God. Because while the day of the Lord is coming, he is your only hope. Joel was warning Israel. And Joel is warning us. The day of the Lord is coming. Who can endure it? See, the locusts were, as many people call it, an early warning system to get us ready for the coming day of the Lord that will bring something far worse than locusts and something for all sinners. You see, in Luke 13 that we were chatting about before, Jesus wanted the people of his day to properly interpret the times that they were living in so that they could respond correctly. They were days, the days they were living in were where evil and suffering were prevalent because the people of Jesus' day, like Joel's day, were living in a fallen world, a world that is in rebellion against God and broken. And what connects us with Jesus' day is that we live in that same fallen world. I mean, Jesus tells us how we ought to respond in the face of things like war or terrorist attacks or natural disasters, whether they be locusts or anything else or even the personal injustices towards us, or even the sinfulness in our own lives, he sees these things as incentives for repentance, to turn back to God. They're a wake-up call for us regarding our own sinful rebellion against God. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He wrote, um, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts to us. In our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. See, it's as if he's saying that God uses disaster as a megaphone to call attention to our guilt and the judgment that it brings. See, and so our response, according to Jesus, is to turn away from our sin and to turn back to God and to seek his forgiveness. I mean, the, the judgments that we experience now are foretastes of the judgment to come. See, God's word actually shows us how to respond. In Luke 13, uh, when, uh, speaking before, when people face those calamities twice and Jesus says, unless you repent, you will perish. Well, there's the answer that we're going to see more clearly next week. How do we come back to God? I know that, many sit, that as we sit here today, that's probably the case that most of us have already done that. But here is a warning. And for now, Joel wants us to sit under the weight of the reality of God's coming judgment upon our whole world. So alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And so to you, O Lord, we call. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are. There are many things in our world that can unsettle us and cause us fear and uncertainty. And we've already heard this morning in the kids' talk that in Jesus we have life and hope and everything else and that our sins are forgiven and that we do not have to fear your judgment. But, Father, we live in a world that is in rebellion against you. And so I pray, Lord God, that as we reflect again this morning on the reality that there is coming a day 
when the Lord Jesus will return and the day of the Lord will be seen to bring righteousness to our whole world. And so we just pray, Lord God, that you would help us to be those who are calling out to you and turning back to you in repentance. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.